flags will fly at half-staff on Memorial Day. This is done to honor the hundreds of thousands who died serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Wars have been an enduring feature of human history, but what are the roots of war? In the last century, we witnessed two of the most destructive armed conflicts, the Great War of 1914 to 18, which became known as World War I, and within decades, another globe-spanning conflict, World War II. In just the last two decades, America became mired in two wars in the Middle East, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And if we zoom out from the American experience and look at the last two weeks, the headlines were dominated by a war between Hamas, the Islamist group in Gaza, and Israel. When we reflect on significant wars, both past and present, what can we learn about the fundamental drivers of war? What conditions are necessary for peace? And what role, if any, does global trade have in the outbreak of wars? Our aim today is to take a philosophic perspective on these questions. We're going to discuss Ayn Rand's illuminating analysis of the roots of war. Welcome to the New Ideal podcast. My name is Ilan Jerna. I'm joined by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Hey, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. So I thought we should start with a really wide question just to situate this issue because the roots of war, that's not really a question people often ask themselves. And it's really important nevertheless. It's something that I think if you want peace, which I think most people will sign on to, I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't, how do you actually avoid the conflicts? How do you get around that? And I think it's just one of these perennial questions that is hovering there, but isn't really addressed and yet really important. Yeah, I remember I read Ayn Rand in high school. I started with Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, and then I went on to read The Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And the second essay in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal is titled The Roots of War. And I remember being very startled by that essay just because of the question that this is the question and her view in effect is if you want to uproot war eliminate it from human the human affairs or human experience you have to understand what its roots are if you're going to uproot it and yet nobody really asked that question so directly and then her answer was startling too but just the fact that she's so openly asking the question indicated to me that she's thinking about it in a way that most people don't think about it and I think the other thing, if you go to college and you take classes either in international relations or in history or any of the humanities, these sorts of questions come up. If you do brush up against some of the perspectives on what is the cause of war, whether it's political or historical analyses, you often get things that I, I think are not very helpful. I think one of the things we should do when we get further into the conversation is to go and look at some of those other views uh, and contrast Rand's view. For me, I, I agree. I think her essay, The Roots of All, which is sort of the focus of what we're gonna talk about is really enlightening and, and deep in the sense that this is a philosophic question. It's, it isn't, you can look at wars in many different axes, right? There's historical analyses of what were the events preceding and, and the consequences during and so on. And, and, that, and that's important. And it can help you get to the roots of all. But if you want a wider perspective on the phenomenon, this, this really destructive phenomenon in human affairs, you need a philosophic perspective, which zooms out and gives you a wider framework. Which I think this is what she does in the essay. Yeah, I think so, one aspect 
that is important to hit on is to, of why it's a philosophical issue. One way you could put it is why do people think it's right to settle conflicts by means of brute force? So a war is, parties are in conflict and they're settling the conflict by blows, by killing each other. And is this, like is war the only phenomenon in which people settle conflicts by appeal to brute force or to physical force? And that, if you broaden it like that and think about it like that, and I think that's how she's thinking about it, you get quickly into philosophical issues. So let's dive into that. So how would you sum up in, in a headline, and then we'll unpack it a bit, what does she regard as the roots of war? And why is it plural? Is it the multi-cause phenomenon, or, or how does she think about this? Yeah, I think she thinks there's two main roots. So one of the points she makes early on, and I think most people would agree with this, that when you look across history, human history, most people in most centuries and in most wars don't want war. It, it means death, destruction, injury for them. It means, the, if you think of past centuries, very precarious existence. Like people are mostly farmers. Um, it's very hard to live uh, year to year. And a war that comes and burns your fields, destroys your crops, uh, your house is, is destroyed, or and you get conscripted into, and you have to go fight and you can't farm. So it's a disaster. So most people don't want war. And yet war has plagued human history. And so one of the questions is, who is who are the people or factions or kind of groups that push for war? And I think she thinks there's two main ones. There's and they're related. I mean, they're it's so in a sense, it's one phenomenon. She'll say the root of war is statism, but and statism means a the a political system, an advocacy of, for, of a political system in which power is concentrated in the state at the expense of the individual. And when you have a regime like that, you have uh, conditions for war. But it, there's people who push that that's what government should be like. Power should be held um, in the hands of the state at the expense of the individual. Communism, for instance. We're going to have a dictatorship of the proletariat. That's a form of statism. So there's intellectuals pushing for that. And then when you get regimes like that, they're on the side of war, not on the side of peace. And I think she thinks those are the two roots. And then we can explore what it means to call these roots. So let's talk a bit about statism, because it's a term that's common, or you can, you can hear other people use it. But it, I think her conception of it is, is broader than most people's, if they look it up in the dictionary, in, in, in this particular aspect, which is, it encompasses a wide range of kinds of political systems. So you gave the example of communism. I think she would definitely consider national socialism, every form of socialism, every form of collectivism that leads to a kind of political organization that you would classify as statism. So it's not, it, 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 it's a big umbrella that captures a lot of different kinds of phenomena. So the question then is, what do they have in common? That, that is justifies putting them together and that, that you can say that their behavior is, ca is captured by that kind of thing. Uh, I find it helpful in thinking about this to 
get the contrast. So it's statism versus what? And for her, the way she conceptualizes it is it's statism versus capitalism. Um, you can think of it a little bit differently. And I mean, she has a very unique and philosophical view of what capitalism is. So for Ayn Rand, capitalism is the system in which the rights of the individual are fully respected and fully secured. So if you think of it in that terms, and more like the Declaration of Independence, governments, which means proper governments, are instituted among men to secure their individual rights. The contrast is state, any form of statism, the rights of the individual are not respected in whole or in part. And the contrast is in a, a capitalist or a system in which the individual rights of the citizens are fully respected um, and fully protected by the actual government. And if you have that contrast, and if you have the Declaration of Independence as announcing to the world, this is what proper government is, it's in effect saying any form of statism, any form in which the government holds power and the individual rights of the citizens are denied is wrong. And if that's what she's referring to as statism, and I would put one other, you brought up earlier about the Middle East and the, the war going on there's a sort of ceasefire, but the war going on and <clears throat> indeed going on for decades in the Middle East, um, I would put theocracy as a form of statism. Again, the power is in the hands now here of a clerical elite and the individual rights say, in, of Iranian citizens are not recognized, respected or protected by the regime. So I mean, that's a, helpful. And then we think about how a regime like that operates, then yeah, if, if the I mean, rights are not, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, you should talk. I mean, you're, you're an expert on the Middle East. Just talk a bit about what it's like to live under a regime like this. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a good suggestion. So if you think about the Iranian regime, for example, I, I interviewed someone who was a, an exile from Iran just a few months ago uh, on our podcast. One of the things you discover is that it really is living in terror and constant uncertainty because you don't know if you go down to the streets to go to the grocery store and buy something, an innocuous kind of activity that every one of us takes for granted as safe and, and routine. You don't know if you're gonna be rounded up and accused of, of arbitrary uh, crimes against the state and thrown in prison without a trial. Like those sorts of things happen if you speak out against the regime, you risk that kind of behavior. And even if you don't, you might be rounded up because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. There isn't a sense, any kind of recognition that you as an individual have a life that is yours and you are entitled to live it according to how you, you believe is right. So you can't speak out. There is no such thing as freedom of speech. And the, the exile I spoke to was a woman. And in Iran, because it's a theocracy in the mold of Islamic totalitarianism, there's a, a, a particularly oppressive state of affairs for women in that situation. So they, they can't leave the house without a chaperone. So just think about what that means morally from the perspective of your life. And you, you know, if your wife or your daughter, or your, your sister, and, and you, you have to be the chaperone. So the, you don't own your own life. You don't have control over it. That is completely in the hands of the authorities, the state in this case, the, the, the theocratic state. So it, it, you are a pawn for whatever they decide to do with you. 
and in, and in fact, you might become, uh, if you're judged to be a threat to the regime, and many people are, they're thrown in prison for all kinds of petty things that are, that should not be crimes, then your life is in their hands and they can dispose of you. You could become someone that they parade on TV. So I'll give you an example. This happened a couple of years ago. There was a teenager and she went, she likes to dance and she went on forget if it was Snapchat or, uh, or Instagram, and she recorded herself dancing in her bedroom. Um, and she got a lot of followers and people liked it. And to the extent that people can access these social media platforms, they, you know, she, she became, became, became kind of a, a sensation. So I think she was 18 or so, it was even younger, maybe 17 at the time. And the, the authorities decided that this was this was basically prostitution. This was illegal. This was a crime against God. So they rounded her up for the crime of dancing in her own bedroom and sharing it with her friends, which uh, how many American teenagers do that? I mean, it's, it's, that is what TikTok is, right? So she was then pulled onto TV in tears and made to confess her crime and shamed publicly. And her family was shamed publicly. Now, so what is the point of doing this to a teenager? It's to drum into everyone, including her, but everyone watching on TV, watching her, her, her coerced confession, that your life is not yours. You don't have any say over what you do. We can see what you do. We can decide what's right and what's wrong. And we will, we will punish you if you disobey. So it's really robbing you of any sense of autonomy of your life, never mind freedom. So this kind of exploitation and uh, de I mean, really dehumanizing people when you treat them this way. And that's just one minor concrete, which I think is really innocuous. There's nothing in what she did that could even threaten the stability of the regime. You can't say that she's a spy. You can't say she's fomenting revolution. There's nothing remotely close to that. And of course, if you are a critic of the regime, the, the penalties just rise. Now, this is Iran. You could talk about Saudi Arabia. You could talk about a whole range of countries in the Middle East that have some version of statism, whether it's an authoritarian regime, whether it's a military dictatorship or theocracy. But the common denominator is your life belongs to the rulers, and whether it's the collective or the theocratic elite or the strongman, and they decide what happens to you. So in that kind of context where your life is held to be cheap, that you can see how this integrates with why a regime like this, why a status regime, if it doesn't respect its own right, and this is, now I'm bringing in Ayn Rand's analysis, the beginnings of it, if the regime does no respect, no even inkling of respect for the rights of its own citizens, why expect it to respect the rights of any, anybody? beyond its borders. And I think this is part of her, so it's a way into her view of what, uh, how a statism operates as a ideological factor in, uh, in the roots of war. Yeah, another way to put the point that if they don't respect the rights of their own citizens, why would, like, why would you have any reason to think they're gonna respect the rights of uh, other citizens of other countries? You can put it that, status regimes, and particularly when they get to the level of something like the Iranian regime, are at war with their own citizens. 
And it's not a big step to get, well, we're going to be at war with other people as well. But to conceptualize it like that, we're at war with their own citizens. And then you brought in, there's an ideological aspect. So part of it, that's you just have a regime like this, but it's a regime sanctioned by an ideological viewpoint, a viewpoint that argues that theocracy is the proper form of government, just as communist regimes come into power from an ideological perspective, that there's people and intellectuals arguing that communism is the proper form of government. And it's one way you can put it is that the rights of the citizens or the subjects of these regimes, they don't recognize their rights. But putting it more in kind of what is their viewpoint? So they deny the individual and the rights of the individual. Their viewpoint is that there's something greater than the individual to which the individual is subordinate and owes obedience, he owns submission. And that I think is important to get ideologically. It's okay, I don't count, but what does count? Well, it's God, you put it like it is a crime against God. It's the God we've imagined, or it's the, it's the um, dictatorship that is ruling. We're gonna usher in the communist fantasy of somehow we're gonna live in anarchy and we're gonna, everyone's gonna have abundance and no one's gonna have to produce. We just run around and so on. It's a kind of a Garden of Eden view when the state withers away. We're the people who know how to do this, shepherd it in. We should have all power. You're subordinate to us. You owe us obedience. And obedience, you can get obedience through the muzzle of a gun. And that's what unleashes force. If you have a philosophical viewpoint that says what's good is for people to submit and obey, then what you're saying is you can achieve the good by physical force. I can make someone submit and obey and tell them if you don't, I'm going to gun you down. Um, and that's how all these regimes work. They work by terror. They work by initiating force or the threat of force against their citizens. And it's so you have to get these regimes come into power through an ideological, through ideological means for the most part, and certainly in modern history. Yeah, I found your point that their war with their own citizens really helpful. I think that really captures the mood and, and the experience of people who live under these regimes. It isn't always, or even most of the time, open warfare. But if you think about how yeah. protesters are treated, so a number of times in the last 20 years, there have been spontaneous protests in Iran. There was a green movement about 12 years ago. And more recently, there have been other protests or students have been protesting at various points throughout their uh, experience under the existing regime. You know, we've seen protests in the United States and their complaints about how the police handled them in various places. That is it, what you see in Iran is, is worlds away. You see the, the regime literally opening fire on its own people, shooting them down, mowing them down with with uh, armored vehicles and, just, and, and then uh, arresting people without any sense of what due process would be or any any semblance of a rule of law approach to this sort of kind of this sort of phenomenon. And so let's take a different example here. The because I think it's relevant that these regimes are really not stable in the sense that your view of the government is one as, okay, it, it's there to help me in some important way to keep me free, that this is how we think of our governments here in the US. It's this constant sense of 
conflict between you and the state because the state really has no respect for your rights. It expects you to obey whatever arbitrary claims or demands are put to you, whether it's you know petty bribery with the police where they pull you over because you haven't been speeding, but you have to pay them to get out of it, whether there, there's a shakedown in the marketplace where you're uh, selling your wares or whether it's even worse kind of levels of corruption and intimidation, or if it's political where you're being critical of the regime and that is on is not tolerated there's this constant sense of impending uh retribution from the regime and in that sense i think it's it's really helpful uh, as a way into this issue to see that this kind of uh hostility to human life within the borders is really pronounced and it's, it's, it's sort of characteristic. And it, it, it sometimes it's low level and people just seem to cope with certain levels of authoritarianism and it, it, it but there's this simmering feeling under the surface. It, it often breaks out into uh, violent clashes, but it, it, it's, so the, the important thing is not that it's a constant civil war between the state and the people. That's not the, the point. The point is that it, it's a kind of, uh, it, it's a certain mood and relationship between the individuals in the state. And it's fundamentally this moral perspective that you were characterizing. It's you have to obey whenever we say and wh whatever we say, as crazy or as outlandish as it might be, uh, whatever news report we, we feed you, you have to swallow that and, and, and parrot it back to us to prove that you believe what, the, what we want you to believe. Uh, and I think if you just project what that really looks like. It's hard to do unless you, you have some deep knowledge of it, but it project what it looks like. That is, you know, a regime like that, what, what can you really expect from it? Uh, and I don't think you can expect from it to coexist. It can't coexist with its own people because it's constantly trying to crush them. Why would it coexist with anyone else? Uh, so, so that kind of leaves open. I think this is where it's helpful to bring the ideological dimension back in because I think that is a it isn't just that they have no respect for their own people it's the it, the more ideological the regimes are the more I think you see them viewing themselves as justified in taking violent action against others and because there's some uh, uh, I mean there's sort of a rationalization for it or an ideological basis for doing that um, and I think th this is there's an interesting point in Ayn Rand's essay that we've been talking about, where she says, and this is one of the things I can see why you found it stalling. I find it really bracing. It's it's she she has this point: statism needs war; a free country does not. And I think that the word "needs" there is doing a lot of work. It's really capturing something deep about what statism is and how it operates. Um, so maybe we should talk a bit about that and some of the historical context that she brings in to sort of illustrate her point. Yeah, she's stressing when she says it needs war, she's stressing that it's at war with its own people. And part of what that means is most of statist regimes make life in the country unbearable. They make it next to impossible to think to produce and to trade among citizens in the country. So they're impoverished. They're going, um, either they're not progressing, sometimes they're retrogressing. Uh, and the one attempted solution, but it's, a, I mean, the regime knows it's not going to work, but 
the regimes fear civil war, as you were stressing. It's not always outright warfare, but what they fear is outright warfare, that the people will take up arms against them and throw them out. So they do all kinds of things to try to prevent that from happening. And one is to attack other countries and to say, partly to loot them, but I think there's another aspect to it. It's to, um, uh, you could put it, it's, it's too weak to put it, it's to distract the citizens. So it's like, don't worry about your problems because we got a war. So the, the fact that you are impoverished in this country, but it's too weak to put it as distract because I think what it is, is what it's trying to erect is another enemy. Don't view us as the enemy who have, you have to overthrow. We're at war with these people. This is our whole problem. And these are the people creating the problems. So it's, it's, it's to get, because uh, I think these regimes are very tribal in their whole atmosphere. And it's to get, oh no, there's an outside enemy that we should all be rallying against. And that is a means of them trying to stay in power. Um, and it's, I mean, you said, what are some of the things she brings up as examples of this? One, one is World War II. Like what, what is the cause of World War II? Who started it? The Nazis and the Soviets in a pact to evade Poland. And these are the two most statist regimes at the time in Europe, um, ganging up on a little country to loot it. And she views like, this is what else would they do? Um, but something like this, given the, the whole ideological viewpoint. And people viewed it as communist versus not, like they view each other as enemies and they're at the throats of one another. Her view is, no, they're essentially the same. She wasn't surprised by they have a pact to evade another country when the world was, oh my God, how can they be teamed up now? Um, but her view is much more philosophical about what's driving it. I, I take your point about their, the way the external enemy functions. I think that that, that comes up in her discussion of tribalism in another essay. Um, I think it's global volcanization. The, so so you, you just to give us some examples here. So I think one of the reasons um, that people in these countries want an external enemy, as you said, is to have a an ex not a distraction, but just pointing at another enemy so to take the heat off themselves. Um, this is, so just to give a concrete under this, so I've, wrote, I've written a book about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the history of it, and so I'm not going to be able to sort of present that whole picture here, but one of the things that I take away from that analysis and that you can find in the book is that the many of the uh, conflicts that Israel has been in with its neighbors from the beginning, from, from its independence, a major factor has been this dynamic of really status regimes nearby looking at Israel and using it as, well, you are now the enemy and you, we're going to orient our whole society towards a war against you and we're going to revile you at every opportunity. We're going to flood our airwaves and our newspapers with all the ways in which we see you as the, the, uh, the enemy. And if you think, so what, one of the, the episodes I describe in the book is the, the war that erupted at the time of Israel's independence in 1948. There was, it's a complicated war. There are two, two sides, two um, 
two fronts to it. One is internal and one is the external. So the, it's the external one that I think is the most telling in this respect. So you get five Arab states deciding to invade, to prevent Israel from becoming an independent state. Uh, and one of the things you, you find as you read into this history is that as much as it's it, it now seen as they were fighting to vindicate the, the rights of the Palestinians who they felt were, were not well treated and were gonna be cheated out of land that they should have had, that's really a, a, a it's a veneer or a sideshow. It's not really the essential of what happened. What actually happened, you see, is that the the neighboring countries, particularly Jordan, and I think this was true of Egypt as well. And part of what they wanted was, well, here's an opportunity to go after this enemy we've been bashing for so long, and we can just to rip it apart, and, and each of us will will conquer some territory and if, hey, I get access to the Mediterranean, I get access to other parts of the world, I could use this for, I could take over the ports, I could take over the agriculture. And now when you think about how much of it has been developed, so there really was a, a, a salient uh, feature of that particular conflict was the desire for conquest by these status regimes that if you looked at them on paper in terms of the military threats, like if you think, okay, is Israel really in 1948, is it really capable of doing harm to these other countries? Could it do what they're doing to it in terms of the military strength? There was no question. It, it could not even begin to do that. It barely was able to defend itself in the face of these invasions. So what you see is that there, there is a, a, a gang of status regimes. Some of them are monarchies. Some of them are just authoritarian. Uh, regimes, and they couldn't really coordinate because they were each at each other's throats anyway. They regarded each other as enemies, but it was the goal was to go and conquer this territory, and and then they one of the reasons they weren't successful in, in the battlefield is because they didn't really want to cooperate. They weren't after a common goal concerning the Palestinians. It was really a war of conquest, which failed. But it, it's really telling that this is this fits the. Uh, sort of dynamic where a status regime reviles an external enemy and then uses that as a way to go to war and, and sort of rally its people towards that. And, and for decades afterwards, this was, it was, a, uh, and it still is in, in many of the, these countries, Israel is, is presented as an enemy. And if you really dig into, well, what really has it done? What has it done to you? How can you justify this as a, an evaluation? it falls apart. It, it's built on conspiracy theories, it's built on myths, and it's built on lies in order to orient the people in these countries whose government is oppressing them, it, to orient them to, well, that's really the enemy you should be worried about, not, you know, what we're doing to you. Forget that. That's, this is small fry. Um, and I think this is, it's really part of the MO of the Iranian regime, too, just to give one final concrete. Someone I spoke to told me that there are three pillars in Iran. One is uh, the way they treat women. One is the hatred towards America. And one is the hatred toward Israel. And without those three, if they treated women fairly and if they treated America and Israel as allies or as non-threats, there would be nothing left of the country because they wouldn't be able to orient their people away from their own misery and the, the way in which they're being oppressed. Uh, and it would really sort of these... Are, have become defining features of the way the regime thinks about itself and tries to teach people to think about their own place in it. And it's, it's telling that this is all one way. So you don't go to Israel and find 
the Israeli press and government saying, all our problems are because of the Jordanians and the Egyptians. And if only we could get rid of them, we would solve everything. There's no parallel at all like that. And that tells you the difference between a semi-free country that has um, a basic respect for individual rights and countries that don't, and the way that they have to try to delude their citizens by propaganda. I think another interesting case of where this is going on in today's world is with China. Um, that it's an authoritarian regime. It's in some ways not as brutal as some as other authoritarian regimes that we've seen. So there's economic development and so on in China, but there is this constant worry on the part of the regime that if the people realize we're the problem, like they, if they had a government like Canada's or the US or Germany's, they would be 10 times more prosperous than what they are now, that the government is in essence repressing them. If they're frightened by that possibility that the Chinese citizens will grasp, yeah, the government's not actually our ally, it's our enemy. Um, and we should overthrow it and or you could put it mildly reform it to be something that is much more respectful of our rights as Chinese citizens. And the, Part of the warmongering with Taiwan, so I think, is trying to get people to think, forget about your own lives. You should care about the Chinese state and this national kind of fervor and look at this renegade province. We've got to get it back and so on. And this is what, what, and then we would be the true Chinese and fulfilling our historic mission. And it's again that there's this cause that is above the individual and it's trying to get them stop thinking about your own life and whether the government is pro your life or anti your life and focus on something else, something external. Um, I mean, I'm fearful in the next 10, 20 years, there will be war uh, between China and Taiwan and the West will abdicate its responsibilities in that regard. But it's the same, I think you see the same dynamic of why the Chinese government would be interested in war with Taiwan, whereas the Chinese, citizens, I mean, they trade some with Taiwan. So the idea that like, we want war and we want them killing us and us killing them, it's not present, but it is for the regime. So I wonder, we, I know we have some questions stacking up we should get to. I wonder if we should just talk a bit about how, just to differentiate Ayn Rand's view, maybe encapsulate it, but differentiate it from a few views out there, because I, I want to stress how, not only is, is it incisive, and I think it gets to the heart of the issue in my view, but it, it really is radical in, in that it, it, it stands apart from a lot of the things you would find if you were trying to understand this issue in a more philosophical way. So let, let's talk a bit about, I think the, the most obvious contrast maybe is with what people might encounter if they read certain publications or if they go to college and take certain classes, this kind of Marxist or socialist account of the what gives rise to wars. And this is something she addresses, I think, indirectly in the article. She doesn't quite uh, frame it this way, but this is a view she acknowledges people might have. And this is the idea that uh, capitalism, as conceived by the socialists, capitalism needs war. It needs wars in order to gain new markets. And, and then there's sort of a wrinkle that, or another aspect that comes along with this, and it's this, 
the idea that financiers and, and uh, weapons makers, so if you think about all the whole, all the industries involved in, in, in uh, equipping a military, they have a huge profit uh, advantage if there's a war. So they are the ones who will stir the pot and kind of create friction in order to get us to get countries into war so that they can make a profit. And, and then this is, and then you can think of this as a sort of a small case of how capitalism is really just driven by the short-term sense for short-term desire for profits, regardless of the consequences. And, and I hope I'm capturing it accurately. I don't know if is there any aspects you think are worth adding to that char characterization of it? Um, I, no, I think that that captures it. And pretty the, the philosophical perspective is that, so she's arguing that statism is the root of war. And you could put it, it to encapsulate the view at a philosophical level. They're arguing that capitalism is the root of war. And then there's various details of how that works out, but that's the essence of the position. And if I understand her view correctly, the, I mean, it's absurd that if you understand what capitalism is about, it's, it's precisely the system and the only system where it's the, all of the incentives are pointing in the opposite direction. They're pointing towards how can we find ways to coexist peacefully with others so we can trade with them and, and benefit from their knowledge and their experience and their innovations and avoid the inordinately costly and destructive experience of a war. I don't think there's any advantage in a war. And if you actually look, you probably know this better than I do. If you think about the economic analysis, of what happens in a war, the, yes, the economy can, you can show graphs where the unemployment goes down to almost zero because everyone's needed in the factories. And there's all kinds of ways you can, you can graph this to show the economy is, is humming and so forth. But all of that is fundamentally misallocated in the sense that how much better would it be if all those mines, all those resources, all those manpower hours were put towards productive ends as opposed to eliminating a negative, which is active, you know, supporting the military in actions for self-defense. Obviously, self-defense is important and you have to do it if you're facing that. But the idea that you would have an incentive to orient your economy towards creating things that just end up the bullets and, and bombs, which are just explode, they explode. They're, they're there to be used and there isn't any benefit to them beyond sort of winning the war. Um, I think that's exactly backwards. Uh, when you think, of, when you have a, a rational conception of what your interests are and you understand them, I think in a, in a framework that is, if you take it out of the sort of, uh, socialist Marxist framework of what self-interest looks like. I think then you can see that this is completely crazy. Like no one would choose this. Yeah, and at, the, at that kind of economic level, the idea that war stimulates the economy, um, it's you have to be detached from reality to think that because war is destruction. It's blowing up things and killing people. And if that stimulated the economy, you don't need a foreign opponent. Why don't we blow up the Hoover Dam, the Brooklyn Bridge, and so on, bombs, blow up some buildings, and, so on, and that will stimulate our economy. And if you put it at that level, everyone will get, like, no, that doesn't stimulate anything. That's just destruction. And that's what war is. And it's why um, productive people 
think of it as destruction and want to avoid it. And if capitalism is the system of production, it's the system of encouraging people to think of themselves as producers, other people as producers, and that what I want to do is trade with them when it, we find it mutually beneficial, not kill one another. So it's at, at a political level, it's fundamentally, and an economic level, fundamentally opposed to war and to destruction. And one of the ways you can see that in today's world, you brought up World War I, World War II at the opening, like the 20th century, racked by two global conflicts. People like to, to disparage globalization, but the globalization that has happened in the last 50 years that, um, I mean, just think of the, uh, the products you have at home, just the, the food coming from almost every region of the world, from kiwis from New Zealand, mangoes from South America, and so if you're just thinking fruits. Um, but, and if you think more broadly of all the products you get from all over the world, the interconnectedness of people, of trade, uh, that, that, that's what globalization is, makes it that most individual people, um, when they're not thinking about what they've been taught kind of ideologically, philosophically, and they're not members of some dictatorial status regime, they recognize like, I don't want war. I want to trade with China. I don't want to be trading bullets with them. I want to be trading uh, electronics with them and so on, with the Chinese people, not the Chinese government. Um, and that's true throughout the world. And that we haven't had a global conflict since World War II. I think part of the reason is the economic globalization makes individual people throughout the world more on the premise, at least implicitly. Yeah, war would be really bad for me for everyone I respect and love and for the world. And that is true in a world that's more productive and trading throughout. So it's, a, it's apart from that kind of the, just the economic benefits that globalization brings, the fact that it pushes against global wars is a, a byproduct of it that is enormously significant. And this was a point she made that when you compare the 19th century to the 20th century, the 19th century, pretty much uh, like at the after the Napoleonic Wars, doesn't have a global conflict, and you only get a global conflict about 100 years later, from 1814 to 1914, when statism is on the rise throughout the world, and and ideologically, like everybody thinks, no, individualism is passe individual rights, that doesn't make any sense philosophically. Um, we're not atomistic individuals. We should be living for the nation, for the proletariat, for the Nazi race, and so on. And that it's so the individual doesn't count. The state is what counts. Then you get a global conflict. And then another global conflict after that. So let me, let me raise another kind of example that people might think of or that, that's been in our culture for a while and that it's worth differentiating Ayn Rand's view from. So you know, one way to capture her view, as you put it, is that freedom is, doesn't need war. Freedom is a solution to war. It's the, it, you just give us an example of how 
globalized trade has made it such that it's there's so many reasons not to go to war and, and to, to find ways to co collaborate and, and trade with people. So one, one view out there that is, I mean, this was something that the Clinton administration had sympathy for and used to voice. Uh, and then the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration adopted in a, in a significant way and made to the centerpiece of its administration. And this is the idea that's sometimes captured by the soundbite, democracies don't fight each other. They don't go to war against each other. And the idea is that the more democratic countries there are, the more peaceful things will be. And so the Bush administration took this on and this became the democracy, at least after 9-11. So, I mean, I don't find it plausible this is similar, but you can see how it might be there are points of contact, at least, in that she thinks freedom is a solution, and George W. Bush was all about the forward strategy for freedom, and the idea of freedom is going to uh, bring so many good things to the Middle East and, and thereby to the rest of us. So I, and we've, we've talked about this previously, but I think it's worth just uh, capturing in essential how this differs in, uh, from Ayn Rand's view. Yeah, let me say something about the philosophical, and then you can say how it played out, for instance, in our disastrous wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's the, the best spin you can put on it is it's an equivocation on democracy. So if you're using democracy as a synonym for a basically free country, so it, it's a synonym for the kind of government, and they're different in their particulars, but what's similar about the government in the United States, the government in Canada, the government in Israel, the government in New Zealand, the government in Australia, and you want to say, okay, these are democracies. Um, what, you're capture, what you're trying to capture is they're basically free, they basically respect the rights of their citizens, the government is there to secure rights. Now, they're, I say basically because that's no longer fully true. No one accepts the Declaration of Independence in the sense of saying, this is the function and only function of government to secure and protect the rights of its citizens. So all these governments have more power than they should. And in various ways, I think, um, trespass on the rights of their citizens. But their still basic orientation is we're supposed to be um, the agent of our citizen, or we're representatives of them and so on. If you're using democracy to try to capture that, then you're trying to capture that they're basically free countries. But then if you take, well, okay, but the essence of a democracy is they vote for their leaders. Um, and that's all, like that's basically, if you can implement that, then you've got a democracy. And then you wonder like, why doesn't a country that votes in someone, why doesn't it function like Canada or the United States? You're, you don't understand all the underpinnings of freedom. If you really think that if you just give people that they can vote for their leader, that's what that's all that happens. And I mean, people voted for Hitler. It didn't stop Germany from being a warmonger. So it equivocates on those. And her point is free or semi-free nations are not warmongering. It's true that they're not. Canada and the US, I think, has the longest international border. And there hasn't been a war for 200 years between the two nations because they're basically free. But you're misconceptualizing it if you say, okay, and yet, and it's democracy, and what that means is voting. So the essence of is if there's voting in a country, it won't be a warmonger. 
you mentioned that how this played out. And so in a book that we brought out in 2009 called Winning the Unwinnable War, and then another book we brought out in 2016 called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, what we show in those books is the destructive consequences of the Bush administration's crusade for democracy. And I, th I think you captured it well in that, that it might even be too charitable to say there's an equivocation on democracy. I don't think there's really thinking about what democracy is. And is that even the, what, would you, what did it take for those kinds of governments to, to arise here in the first place? And then what would it take anywhere for them to arise? I think uh, there was a, a, a major dose of wishful thinking that this could be replicated. So the idea behind the Bush administration's doctrine was, as you put it, just bring elections and elections are the primary feature or the essential feature of these sorts of societies. And if you do that, then you will have freedom and the Middle East would not be a mess of countries fighting against each other because there would no longer be, they would then be quote democracies, unquote. Well, the, the striking thing is that people vote for, when they're given the vote, they vote for what they believe is the right kind of government. And that was the big, big fact that was being evaded, which is throughout the Middle East, a major uh, ideological force was a kind of statism, which is the Islamist movement, or the ideology of Islamic totalitarianism embodied in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in a number of movements and groups, Al-Qaeda being the most well, well known at the time. And if you, when you gave people the vote, what they voted for are people who more, as closely as they could legally uh, advocated for those kinds of ideas that the, the state should be under Islamic rule. And in some cases take uh, the, uh, the Palestinian territories, take Egypt where there were elections, all of them pressured into happening by the United States. And Iraq, the, the, the sort of the centerpiece of this whole approach. In Iraq, what you got is a, a, a cluster of various parties, most of them, if not all of them, influenced by Iran, if not completely controlled by Iran. And they were advocating the kind of regime that Iran has. And actually, this is just most of them. There are other, many, many, many groups, but this, the ones that gained the most power were Iranian allied. And what you get in the Palestinian territories is a landslide victory for Hamas, the, the, the Islamist faction that has become the vanguard of the Palestinian movement. Uh, the same thing happened in Egypt. The, this was not a full election. This was sort of the, the beginnings of what uh, they were willing to do in 2005. And the Muslim Brotherhood gained an extraordinary number of seats in the representative government, which is a joke because it was still a dictatorship. And then again, during what came known as the Arab Spring, which is, I think of that as the second wind of the Bush administration's doctrine. This was a country that, so in Egypt in particular, there were major protests to bring down the authoritarian ruler, Mubarak, and he stepped down. And after various uh, uh, interim governments, they had elections and who won? The Muslim Brotherhood not only won a large number of, of uh, the votes, they actually ascended to power and, and gained control of the regime. So. It, what I think these examples illustrate is that if you want a free society, you have to understand that freedom is a product and that it, it rests on certain ideas. And unless you have those ideas, principally the idea that individual 
is sovereign, that his life matters, and that freedom is the condition under which individuals can thrive, and that this is the people should be able to coexist with one another without force, and that's what the government is there to do, is to eliminate force from human relationships. Unless you have some of those, and those are just a sketch of what freedom requires, you, you can have elections, but what you will end up with is whatever dominant ideas people do actually believe in, because they don't believe that not enough of them believed in the ideas of individualism, of freedom, and of governments that are there to be the protector of freedom. And, and I think this is the, it was a, a, I thought of it as a slow motion disaster because this was predictable. We foresaw this. We argued against this at the beginning of the process. We argued when it was starting to be proven right. And we were arguing about this afterwards. This is, it was a, a, a major, major uh, uh, setback for America because what it did is it, it empowered the worst elements in the Middle East by giving them the legitimacy of gaining power through uh, elections and through what are uh, seemingly legitimate means. So to, this is a this is I think the farthest one of the farthest places you can go uh, from what Ayn Rand's view actually is. Uh, this is a a travesty of what it means to advocate for freedom in international relations or, or in any context because it it emptied freedom of all philosophic meaning and foundation and treated elections as a primary when that is a, a, a terrible inversion. If we go back to the roots of war, you said it's charitable, call it equivocation, which I agree. It's, it's the kind of kindest spin you can put on it. But from looking at the US foreign policy after 9-11, it's an evasion of the roots of war. And if you think just of what you're bringing up in the Middle East, we'll bring, we'll bring democracy there. It's if the two roots are statist regimes, which the um, kind of better characterization, a characterization Ayn Rand uses a lot, is they're gangs. It's a gang that's ruling a territory, and they engage in gang warfare with other gangs trying to rule the territory. Uh, and that's part of what happens in the uh, with the Palestinian Authority battling Hamas and Hezbollah and so on. Um, if you're bringing power to gangs and you give them an ideological sanction that you say, yes, no, your ideas are not the problem. Um, no, Islam's a religion of peace and it, you can hold that you want submission and obedience from everyone. Yeah, that's good. If, so you get the two roots are you have an ideological root pushing that what is proper is not the individual, his life, his happiness, politically, it's not respect for his life, happiness, pursuit of happiness, his rights, it's power should be in the hands of a state. Um, it should wield total power. And then you say, yeah, and you can vote for people like Arafat and Hamas and Hezbollah. Yeah, it doesn't matter that they're killers and rulers of gangs and so on. You put the, and then you're going to say this is going to end war. Um, it's, yeah, it, it was such an evasion of what the actual roots of war are. And if you were trying to do something to end the war in the Middle East, what you would have to uproot. 
Well, we're close to time. Let's try to fit in some of the questions that have come in. Uh, yeah, let's good. see. So I don't know a lot about Bitcoin. Do you feel like you can answer this question? So there's a question here about um, if Bitcoin were more widely adopted and replaced fiat currency, would that have an impact on the likelihood of wars because government would less be less able to pay for war through the printing of fiat currency? I'm not um, sure I fully get it, but yeah, do I, don't, you, yeah. I don't have a, a real view of Bitcoin in the cryptocurrencies, but I don't think at that level of analysis, um, so that kind of concrete thing that that has in, any impact on um, whether we're going to see world wars and so on. It's, it's what is the dominant ideologies that are rising and giving uh, sanction to political forms of organization. And we have, we're in the presence, I think, worldwide of a rise in authoritarianism, which is a form of statism. And if that's what's rising politically, then we're moving closer to war and global conflict because for, for the very reasons we were talking about, that statist regimes, as Ayn Rand put it, need war. So there's a question here about um, the, what the question is characterizing as domestic wars, such as Nixon's war on quote, uh, illegal drugs and the war on cancer, both of which, uh, in which individual rights are taken away. I don't, I think of those as metaphorical wars and in this in the sense that they're what the analogy is is that there's a concerted effort around this target this negative factor in society uh, but I, I guess if maybe this is what the question is trying to get at is is it that there's a commonality in these and actual wars in the sense that the individual's freedom of action is being, curtailed in both i'm not sure i got the question but um yeah i don't understand the parallel to a war on cancer at all i, I don't think governments should be funding healthcare and healthcare research and so on but i don't think there's parallels to what we're talking about and uh so-called war on cancer but the war on drugs is yeah i do not think this is a legitimate government function to tell people uh, what drugs you can and cannot take. And I think the painting of it as a war on drugs is deliberate. So, and, and for the way that we were talking about to, to make an enemy that you must oppose, um, it's a war on drugs and they're destroying us and they're destroying young people and they're destroying the fabric of our cities and our civilization. We got a war against it versus thinking of it as, there's somebody smoking marijuana in his bedroom. And it's like, how, why is this a threat to me? So to paint it as a war um, is to demonize it and to say, oh yeah, we need drastic action. And then part of what happens with the war, to make the war on drugs, to make these things illegal that should not be, you attract the criminal element to it. And so then you do have actual killings going on and gangs fighting for territory and so on for the whole illicit drug trade. I mean, trade in brackets. 
I mean, in, in scare quotes. Um, so you've made this that it's only going to be criminals who are going to be running everything. And then it does look more like, oh, yeah, there is this is a big problem. We don't want these criminal gangs. Um, and then it makes it seem like the government's action is more legitimate than it actually is. So I think there's that parallel in the war on drugs. There's many dissimilarities, but there is a parallel now. All right, let's let's make this the last question. Um, the tribalist and statist blame game of deflection exhibited by regimes around Israel is telling, but I'm confused here, says the questioner. Uh, this is common in all states, including Israel. Why the exception? I, I'm not sure if I get the last part of it, but uh, the it, it's common in is it common in all states? I mean, I think it's common to the extent that what you're seeing are tribal dynamics. So uh, is there something like this between the Republicans and Democrats in the United States? Do they treat each other as rival gangs and vilify each other and, and use this to kind of rally their base and, and point at the other side is doing this. We have to go after, and this is the, let's raise some money around this. This is the biggest crisis going, and and it's done on both sides. I, I mean, I think that happens, and it's it's definitely a tribal phenomenon. The kind of what you're characterizing in the question as deflection, or as, as Ankar put it, uh, um, creating an pointing at an external enemy in order to um, justify obedience. I, I think you get that on a that's more pronounced in states that are more controlled and more statist and more tribal. And I think those go together. Uh, so I think that is, so let me just give a concrete, so because I, I think this is maybe where the question is coming from. The kind of vilification I'm describing by the state external to Israel for, for decades are things like, uh, mini series of you know dozens of episodes that dramatize the conspiracy theory the the protocols of the elders of zion as fact as historical fact and this is broadcast on egyptian tv on all kinds of satellite tv throughout the middle east continually this is not a and it's not an outlier and it's not a freak thing and then you get newspapers that are government run or government are censored so that only what is approved appears in them publishing this sort of uh, conspiratorial thinking all the time, official government statements, uh, blaming Zionist conspiracies, trying to overthrow us. They're after our blood. They're going to take your children. They're going to use them for sacrifices. All kinds of crazy stuff that happens all the time. And so it's, it's in the atmosphere to the point where if you live there, it's, well, this is normal. This is, we know this is all true. This is part of what you breathe and live around. That's a high, I mean, the volume is turned way up on that. Now, and that it actually leads to war, it led to war. So decades of the rulers of Egypt calling Israel a cancer in the region and treating it as that actually led to war and a popularly endorsed war. So that when one, I mean, this, there's a, a remarkable story of the Egyptian ruler failed in a war effort in 1967. The Egyptian military air force was decimated before it even took off from the airfields. He offered to resign, but he was dissuaded from doing that by popular support. So just think about what had to have happened in that kind of society 
for the popular support to go to the authoritarian ruler and tell him, don't leave, we, we're okay with this. You know, it's not you, they did something to us. This is their even greater enemy we realized. So that level of orienting towards an external enemy is at a scale that's way, way, uh, it, it's hard to capture. Now, does it happen in, in other societies? Are there things like this? I mean, I can tell you in England, there are racists who, who to point to immigrants and people from India and, and Pakistan and treat them as the source of all problems in, in British society. And that's, that's been going for a long time. Is that the same thing? It's the same in kind. Is it the same in degree? I don't think it is. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to capture here, and I hope I'm getting the core of the question, is that I think this kind of behavior is very closely connected to tribal thinking. And the more it's in power, I think particularly politically powerful and culturally powerful, the more pronounced it is and the more it's acceptable because it is controlling. Um, it, does it happen in Israel? Yeah, I think you can see this within the political factions. Does it happen with respect to uh, the way, as Ankar put it, it's, it's a one-way relationship. You don't get the same kind of ferocity that you hear in Egypt towards Israel as you do in Israel towards Egypt. It just does not exist. There's nothing comparable uh, that you would characterize as the same in that respect. Uh, and that's just, you can, that's well documented. You could take a look at that. Uh, do you think, I'm, I'm not and sure I, I fully got the question. Do you want to add to that? Well, I think that last part is, the, is crucial to the answer so that it's, you're dealing with, a different phenomenon. It has some similarities that, yeah, there's tribal thinking in free countries and so on. But when it's at the level that it has political ascendancy and it's the regimes can do this and it's the regimes can do it, I was gonna say they can do it with impunity, but it's worse than that. The regimes are respected because they do this. And if they didn't do this, they would not be respected. So the way the regimes um, in the Middle East, too many of them, demonize Israel and the Jews, or the way the Nazis demonized the Jews, it's not like this didn't lose them power, it gained them power. Or to take a different kind of case, um, and here it's like if you had brought up earlier, Alon, that if you don't have any experience with um, statist regimes, it's hard to project what it's like in them. If you take the Hutus and the Tutsis, if you've ever listened to some of the radio broadcasts that were broadcast about demonizing, and that this is on the radio government networks kind of thing, and this like doesn't dis completely discredit the people doing it. It's rather, oh yeah, this is good, what they're doing. And if you're in an atmosphere like that, um, it's nothing like um, when our government, there's some scandal going on and then they start talking about something else to try to deflect the attention from, don't pay too much attention because look at this, what's happening over here. We've got a drought in California or something. Yeah, there's that kind of deflection. It's not on the same, it's not the same phenomenon. And you have to really think of, and try to kind of project or if you have any experience, I mean, I lived um, as a youth for a year under a communist regime, and it's, you have no idea if 
you can't try to project what that really is like, that it's a difference in kind, not in degree between mm. what the, the way the Biden or Trump administration tried to deflect various things and what happens under these regimes. Well, let's draw a line here. Thanks for everyone uh, joining us today on this live stream. We are glad to have you. Thanks for all your questions. I can see we didn't get through all of them, but I, I should mention that as soon as we end this live stream, I'm gonna hop into Clubhouse and be joined by my colleague, Ben Bayer, and we're gonna continue the conversation here. We're happy to take more of your questions. We might bring up some of the questions that were asked and discuss them. And that is happening in just a moment or two. So Clubhouse is now available, I think not only for iPhones, but also for Android. So more people should be able to join. We hope to see you there. And as always, we welcome uh, you to join us next time. We'll have an, we have another episode next week. I think that I should mention the resources before we wrap up. And that is, we've been talking about Ayn Rand's essay, The Roots of War, which you can find in her book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. You, and we've got a short link you can find bit.ly slash the roots of war. And you can find, I think that takes you to a page on the Iron Institute's website where this essay can be found and you can read it there. Uh, so we hope you'll take a look at that. Uh, there's a lot more in the essay than we've been able to, to cover in this discussion. And I strongly recommend you take a look at that. I think there's a lot to learn from it. And if you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe and click the bell so you get notifications. We would love for you to tell us what you think. Do you like this video? Leave a comment. We'd love to see what you have to say. And this all helps us reach new audiences by elevating this video. If you're watching on uh, another platform like Facebook, please like this video, share it, tell your friends. That, again, that helps us reach more people and we hope you'll help us do that. Finally, if you have suggestions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, newideal at einran.org. We try to respond to everything. We do read everything. And many times the questions prompt these conversations, these podcast episodes. So we welcome your suggestions if you have them. And I think until next time, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thanks, Ankar. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.